In Puerto Rico, they call themselves Boricua. But Boricua is more than a name for a person from Puerto Rico. It's a way of life that means embracing the beauty that surrounds you, seeking adventure no matter where it may lead, and sharing that vibrant spirit with everyone you meet. And you can experience all that warm, welcoming, passionate culture set in a tropical island paradise without the need for a passport for U.S. citizens or permanent residents. Learn more about how you can live Barigua at discoverpuertorico.com. In Puerto Rico, they call themselves Barigua. But Barigua is more than just a word to identify a person from Puerto Rico. It's a way of life that means embracing the beauty that surrounds you, seeking adventure, and sharing that vibrant spirit with everyone you meet. In Puerto Rico, you can experience a tropical paradise with world-class beaches. You can immerse yourself in the rich 500-year history of Old San Juan, where there are stunning forts, classic town plazas, and iconic monuments. You can indulge in a foodie paradise with renowned restaurants, seaside kiosks, and an innovative cocktail scene. And you can take in an abundance of natural wonders like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the U.S. national forest system, all without the need for a passport for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more about the warm culture of Puerto Rico and how you can live Boricua at discoverpuertorico.com. Hey listeners, it's your Travel Tales host Aislinn here. Welcome to the third of our summer replays. Just a reminder that the new season kicks off on August 25th. In the meantime, this week we're hitting the river with Eric Weinmayer. Eric is the hugely inspiring founder of No Barriers, a nonprofit that helps people tap into their inner hope and resilience through travel and other experiences. I have long been inspired by Eric, who lost his sight at age 13, but never lost his thirst for adventure. He was the first blind person to summit Mount Everest. He has completed the seven summits, the highest point on every continent. He has rock climbed in California and ice climbed in Antarctica. More than a decade ago, Eric decided it was time to try something new. He wanted to solo kayak the entire Grand Canyon, paddling 277 miles of the Colorado River. On September 7th, 2014, he was finally ready to take the three-week journey. It was, as you can imagine, quite a ride. So, I would love to just go back to the beginning, Eric. You've climbed all around the world, all the major peaks. So, what made you decide to try kayaking? Well, I was actually on a ice face in Nepal a beautiful 3,000-foot ice face, a vertical ice face, and it was called Losar, which is in the Sherpa language, or in Tibetan, it's uh, Losar. And so we were up what's called bivying on that climb, which is like, you know, we couldn't make it to the top in one day, so we pulled off onto this ledge, and then we're sleeping in these tiny little sleeping bags, and it was cold. There's a cold wind blowing down the mountain. And I was just shivering and like almost hallucinating with cold. And we didn't have much food either. We think we had like one package of soup each and a little stove. And I remember going, Rob, man, are you miserable too? And he said, yeah. And we started talking about kayaking (laughs) and rivers, how, you know, a lot of times you're in the sunshine and uh, you can bring food in the raft behind you and you can bring beer with you if you're over 21. And uh, I thought, wow, that sounds really good. And so when we got home, um, I said, Rob, will you teach me a kayak roll, which is uh, 
like a combat roll, which is where you're upside down and you got to take your paddle to the surface and flip over. And so he stood in a lake in Colorado right next to my kayak. And by within two, two and a half hours, I had this shaky roll. And then after that, I said, hey, Rob, do you think you'd uh, guide me down a couple easy rivers? And that's how it all began. (laughs) And you still wanted to kayak after that. So after learning that kayak roll, how long did you train before you finally felt ready to tackle the Grand Canyon? I mean, for me, it was six years, but I thought, okay, I could kayak for a year and just get, you know, just go really crazy with my preparation. And I could probably survive the Grand Canyon, but I didn't want to just survive. I mean, I remember there had been climbs in the past where you kind of like squeak to the top and maybe you feel a little bit lucky or fortunate, but you kind of squeak by by the skin of your teeth. And I was like, that doesn't feel good. That's not like why I'm doing these things to squeak by by the skin of my teeth. I want to really figure out if I could one survive, but flourish in that river environment. And at that point in my life, I hadn't really had a lot of experience on rivers, mostly on mountains, which oddly had become my comfort zone. But uh, in terms of rivers, I was like, I don't even understand the language of rivers with this whole map of the river in terms of like holes that were like giant washing machines that wanted to grab your boat and suck you down and pour overs, which are like waves that go over rocks that are on the surface and eddy fences, you know, these sections of the river that actually run upstream instead of downstream. But it was a whole new language. And it was a whole new environment. And I really wanted to see if I could flourish in that environment as a blind person, you know, with what I could hear, what I could feel under my boat, what my guides were telling me and giving me commands. And I just wanted to see if I could flourish in that environment like I'd seen other people do. That really intrigued me. Like how far could I take this as a blind person? And I'll tell you, when I first started, my gosh, like I'd get on a lake and river kayaks are meant to turn. So you get just like in a little bit of a wind and I'd be paddling and I'd be turned around paddling the opposite direction. And my friend Rob would say, hey, dude, you know, you just turned like a 180 and you're going backwards now. And I'm like, wow, I have no idea. I'm so disoriented right now. So I had to start learning how to orient myself by what I was hearing, by the sun in my face, by the direction of the wind, you know, by the echolocation, you know, where I could hear the canyon walls to each side. And then as the sun changed throughout the day and it moved through the sky and it changed its angle through the canyon. That's so incredible. And how often did you train? Oh, I was training almost every day for six years. I mean, whenever I could, you know, maybe not every day because sometimes I still had to work and things like that. But, you know, three days a week I was kayaking, whether I was on the lake paddling or whether I was in Clear Creek, which is in Golden, Colorado, where I live or, uh, you know, finding other rivers all around Colorado, or even taking training trips all around the world. We went to Peru several times and kayaked different rivers. We went to Mexico and paddled the Usumacinta. And the first time I actually went onto the Usumacinta, which is this giant Grand Canyon of Mexico. It separates Guatemala from Mexico. It's in the region they call Chiapas. And with crocodiles in the river and like these Mayan ruins alongside the jungle, right alongside the river. It was totally amazing. But the first time we went, there was a huge series of rainstorms. And so the river exploded. And instead of being, this is a little bit technical, but instead of being 
like 40,000 cubic feet per second. It was like 120,000. So basically it tripled in power. And so you were just riding these giant waves and giant energy sources down the canyon. Just, it was so gigantic. And I really got in over my head. I got really scared through the process. It was to the point where I almost didn't even want to get back in my boat again. How did you get back in your boat? And when did you feel you were ready for the Grand Canyon? And actually, I run an organization called No Barriers, and we work with a lot of people with different kinds of challenges. And I actually met with uh, a guy, Ryan Kelly, who was in one of our groups, and he had PTSD. And I met him one day for coffee, and I said, hey, dude, I feel like I have touches of PTSD, like I'm really terrified to get my boat. And he said, dude, PTSD or trauma, it's not like a veteran thing, it's a human thing. You know, we're, our lives are full of trauma, and we get in over our heads and we question ourselves. We question the decisions that we make. We question how we're going to rise to the occasion in front of our team. And it can paralyze you. And that's what it is. You know, you get stuck in this paralysis. And he said, just small acts of courage every day. You got to, you know, go sit in your boat. Even if you're sitting in the garage, you know, just go back, just move in the right direction. And so uh, ultimately I decided to go back to the Usama Center the next year. And I was able to kayak the whole thing and felt so much more comfortable in my boat. And so I think after that trip, I said, okay, I'm ready for the Grand Canyon. I think I'm ready to take on these rivers. So what was the first day of that three-week trip like? I had an amazing team. My friend Rob, who I climbed Losar with. And so I found my buddy Harlan, Harlan Tanny, half human, half dolphin. He was part of these Grand Canyon trips when uh, we would lead blind people for our No Barriers organization down the Grand Canyon on these youth programs. And then I had my friend Skyler and a couple other friends with me. And then the coolest part was I had read about this other blind guy, Lonnie Bedwell, who was a really good kayaker. And there was a news article about him. And I reached out to Lonnie and I invited him and said, hey, maybe you want to come along with me and we'll kayak the Grand Canyon together. I think that could be really powerful. Okay, so you had this big team assembled, and then what was it like to launch off and begin the journey? <laughs> I was so nervous, it was really warm. It was probably like 90 degrees, and I was shivering. So it's not really true that I'm like, you know, hey, blind people that do these things, or anybody with a challenge who does these things, they must not even have fear. That's not true. I was shaking, and Rob said to me, hey buddy, what? I noticed that you're like shaking a little bit. Are you cold? And I go, now I'm just like really nervous thinking about this big adventure ahead. And so, yeah, even the first day I had nerves. But the good thing about the Grand Canyon is it's kind of a buildup. You have some beginner rapids before you get to a real big one on like the second or third day. And then it just kind of eases in and gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and more intense all the way up to Lava Falls, which is a 10 out of 10 on the Grand Canyon scale. It's a gigantic rapid. And how would he maneuver you? I wasn't going to be able to hear in these giant rapids, you know, these walls of water that were like 20, 30 feet tall. And so in my training, my guides would be right behind me and they'd be yelling very specific directions to me. Basically, it was just a left, which is like a 45, hard left, which is a 90 or a small left or a right and a charge, which meant charge into that rapid because you're about to get destroyed by it. So you better charge and be super aggressive and lean in. Or, and then stop paddling uh, or back paddle. So super, super simple commands. But we realized though, rivers are so crazy. Like I'm trying to turn a left 
and the river is actually pulling me right. And it's very hard to tell because there's like another dimension under my boat. So even though, yeah, maybe I'm turning left in my mind, the river's still pulling me right. And it would pull me into an eddy or some kind of crazy situation. And Rob or one of my guides would shoot past me and be like a hundred yards down the river. So we realized we needed radios. So uh, we went on the search trying to develop radios that didn't exist, that I could hear they were really reliable. They could communicate in water, which is like pretty hard to find in itself, but also that Rob or Harlan could communicate in real time, like even a half a second of delay, which is most radio systems is an eternity. I want to be able to get that command as quickly as possible. So basically on the Grand Canyon, my friends, my guides were behind me yelling directions through the radios, which by the way, the Grand Canyon is such a silty river. There's so much silt pouring down that it actually got into the membranes of the radio. And within a couple days, they were barely working. <laughs> so that became a problem in itself. We had to go back to the old fashioned, just yell your head off. I like that, <laughs> yell your head off. What was going through your mind as you made it through that first set of rapids? I felt like I was just kind of surviving these things, you know, like, am I here fully in this experience? Am I a person like looking through a window at an experience rather than the person being in the experience? You know, fully being there, fully like learning and growing and, and, and kind of just experiencing everything very fully and authentically. I really have strived for that in my life. And so that was, I think, my struggle always, you know, just like all the fear and the, the anticipation of the bigger rapids to come. Uh, and then the feeling that you're sometimes out of control, you know, as a blind person, just going down a rapid with just the voice commands of the person and the stuff you're feeling under your boat and the sounds that you're hearing that you're trying to interpret. Sometimes that was way overwhelming and it felt like a weight on my shoulders or like crust that kind of accumulates around your soul and kind of pulls you away from the experience. And I just wanted to be there fully because I really feel strongly that these experiences shouldn't just be something that you put on your resume or like a trophy on your shelf or, you know, a picture on your wall they should be teaching you something so that you're more prepared for the next time. They're a catalyst to bring you to the next thing that launches you forward into this new chaotic situation in the future. So I wanted this experience to be really meaningful. What was the most memorable moment for you? So I remember going through one rapid called Upset. It's got a huge hole that you have to squeak right by. But again, it's kind of counterintuitive because you angle in and you hammer through these big waves that are crashing up against the canyon wall. And then you cut right and you ride this gauntlet between those huge waves and this gigantic hole that's right to your right. And you squeak through that and you run through the bunch of waves and then you get out of Upset. and. Uh, I remember paddling through that and just riding that gauntlet and hearing that guttural hole to my right and hearing the waves just exploding against the wall to my left and feeling like I was so connected with this experience. You know, I was like, I actually had a smile on my face. I just felt like I wasn't that person interacting with the canyon. Like I felt like I was the water, I was the walls, I was the wave 
I didn't feel the, the separation between me and the experience. And, and I remember that feeling lingered with me all day. It was such a beautiful feeling of flow and connection with what I was trying to do. And the crazy ironic part is that you train for six years and you get seconds of that feeling. But I really think that's what athletes are looking for. And we're even looking for that in terms of our human experience, just feeling connected and not separated from this environment. And it became almost a spiritual feeling because I'm not like a traditional Christian or, or Muslim or Buddhist or anything like that. But it did border on this idea where I sat on the shore and with my feet in the water at that afternoon. And I was just overwhelmed by this feeling of connection that I was part of this great environment of something beautiful and big that I had faith existed at the end of the tunnel. So maybe it sounds a little cheesy, but it really does become a spiritual experience, these things. It's not about defying death. It's about sort of figuring out how you navigate through these really scary situations. Yeah, that's not cheesy at all. It sounds like kind of what you were aiming for all these years. At what point was that during the trip? No, it was like day 12 or something. <laughs> so yeah, it takes a while to kind of really get into the flow. And then, you know, Lava Falls came, which is, as I said, a 10 out of 10 on the Grand Canyon scale. And I ran lava and just everything went wrong. You know, you know, you have that moment where you're feeling connected, you're feeling in the flow of it. And then you think, okay, I got it. I figured it out. And then you go in and your next big rapid, you just get destroyed. It's like, wait a second. I thought I'd crack this code. <laughs> I'm back to square one. Lava is so big that, yet again, you can't just go through the rapid straight on. You know, there's a giant like hole that's like two thirds of the, of the width of the river. So it's really big, wide hole. And rafts, I've heard described these videos of these rafts going into the hole and just getting absolutely destroyed, like flips the raft. I'm talking like 30 foot rafts getting flipped over and everyone swimming for their lives. So you've got to squeak past that hole and you hit what's called the V waves, giant waves that come together and you bump just to the left of that and you square up with the big kahuna waves, these giant waves that crash over you one after the next, you squeak by cheese grater rock, which is this lava rock that's like, you do not want to scrape against it. It'll destroy you, it's so sharp. And then you ride the whirlpools and boils and everything out of lava. I went into lava, I was so nervous. I'd been waiting around for a little while scouting and I think I just almost talked myself out of it or something like I think the pressure built up and uh, I just felt like I was trying to take deep breaths and I was trying to be in the moment and I came down the river and I hit these boils like these energy source that come up out of the bottom of the river and they smash against the shore and they whip you like a monster's tail back into the ledge hole well I hit one of those boils and I tried to like fight it and I flipped over and I was upside down at the top of Lava Falls which is like the worst place in the river to be upside down and then just everything went wrong from there I rolled up I just squeaked by the ledge hole I hit the V wave cockeyed I went through that in a massive cartwheel I went through the big kahuna waves backwards I got knocked over barely got a breath I mean thousands and thousands of gallons of water crashing down on top of me and then Harlan I didn't even know it. I couldn't hear him giving me commands. He was having an epic of his own because he put his paddle against one of these giant waves and it busted his carbon fiber paddle in half and it smashed him in the face. So he was upside down with two halves of a splintered paddle, blood pouring out his nose going, oh my God, I got a 
roll up so I can communicate with Eric. And he's got these two paddles and he's trying to roll up and he's failing on his own roll. <laughs> and uh, he eventually rolled up. But I, by that time I panicked and I pulled my skirt and I was swimming blind through Lava Falls. <laughs> so it wasn't my best day. <laughs> That's an understatement. So how did you get back in your boat the next day? Well, I remember sitting on the shore, listening to lava roaring above me and just thinking, okay, when do you just gather up your losses and just move on and say, okay, I survived it. That's good enough. And I had this sort of brain that just wouldn't let go of lava. You know, I kept thinking, you know, lava didn't beat me. I beat myself. I beat myself, my own fear, my anticipation. It all just built up to the point where I beat myself. I wasn't in the flow. I was the opposite of the flow. I let everything just overwhelm me. And I just kept thinking like, if I could go through it one more time, now that I understand the map of lava a little bit better, and I could let go of some of that stuff, even if I got destroyed again, at least I would have done it fully, you know, fully in the present, you know, instead of with all these layers of fear and anxiety and doubt just weighing me down. So I crawled out of the tent the next morning and it was kind of a sleepless night. And I said, Harlan, what do you think the chances of doing Lava Falls again? I was hoping he'd say, hey, it's impossible. <laughs> but he didn't. He said, yeah, I've been waiting for you. I was hoping you'd say that. So uh, we hiked up with our boats, carrying our boats. It's a little bit technical, but you have to ferry across the river. You kind of angle your boat and it kind of pulls you across the current. And then we hiked up the other side past lava to the very top and we did it again so what happened the second time was it transcendent yes and no i'll start with the non-transcendent part the non-transcendent part is the fact that my run was almost the same as the first run it's not like okay now i just destroyed it because i'm in this great mindset no i rolled down i almost flipped on one of those boils again the exact same boil but i hung on somehow I went through the V-Wave slightly better. I got knocked over again, of course, but I rolled up and I went into the Big Kahuna Wave slightly better. I got knocked over again, just crushed down with all that weight. And I just relaxed underneath it and said, okay, just count to five, count to five, you're okay. You know, you're okay. You're in the moment, you're in the flow. And I rolled up and I was at the bottom of Lava Falls and I had survived it. And I was in my boat, which is, very big deal for a kayaker, especially a blind one, when you don't want to be swimming blind without your boat. I guess the transcendent part was the fact that the second run, I said to Harlan, I said, who do you think should come up the river with me and do this again? And he said, your team will come with you. Your whole team will come up there and we'll support you. And so I think the second run, despite the fear and all those things that you naturally feel, which are hormones running through your brain, I was also feeling a sense of gratitude for this amazing team around me and the, uh, and the fact that like I knew I was going to survive this thing and I was going to flourish in the midst of it. And so that was a really beautiful feeling, like a blanket over you of gratitude and just appreciation for where I was and what I was doing. So that was definitely the transcendent part. And it makes me a little teary-eyed when I think about my team 
all coming up the river with me. And then when I got down through the lava, I pulled off on the side into the eddy that's right at the bottom of lava. And it was this insanely beautiful moment. Like we we're all crying. Did these beautiful kayak hugs with my team. And uh, for all of us, it was a really special moment because Harlan and Rob and my other team members, they were all there helping me get through this experience. And experiencing the river a little bit more the way Rob and Harlan did in this beautiful sense of appreciation and gratitude. And it's counterintuitive because, as I said, you know, there's no guarantee that you get through these rapids intact. But if you don't have faith, if you don't believe that there's something good waiting for you down below, that the river isn't this monster trying to gobble you up, that there is a sense of faith that like there's something good happening, you'd never be able to get through a rapid. It's this kind of illogical mindset of have faith that I will get through this and that I will flourish, even though there's zero guarantee that you will get through it and flourish. Where did the trip go from there? It's such a high moment. Well, after that, there's still some big rapids ahead, but they're big hits and they're not like super dangerous. You know, you get wailed and then you get knocked over and you roll up and you're through them. And uh, so really it's like, you're kind of coasting downhill after that. And I remember coming through the Grand Canyon and popping out of the actual canyon and now being in the desert closer to Lake Mead. And Harlan and Lonnie Bedwell, the other blind kayaker, we were all together. And we were like, we did it, we did it together. And then we tried a, what's called a high five with your paddles. And it's really funny because we have it on video of, of me and Lonnie trying to do high fives with our paddles. It's two blind guys. We're missing most of the time. We're just like hitting air. <laughs> <laughs> called a blind paddle five. I love that. What came out of this experience for you? Well, I call this my no barriers pledge. You know, so there was a lot of flailing and bleeding in the beginning of the preparation process. But I did have this pledge, which is the Kayak the Grand Canyon, which we were able to do. And I was hoping that that would inspire people to take their own No Barriers pledges. One of the things we do in our No Barriers organization, we work with injured veterans, we work with uh, people with physical and different invisible barriers and challenges. We work with caregivers, you know, people who take care of those with challenges and they never, they kind of lose themselves in the process. So we work with all these challenged folks and at the end of every program, we want them to take a No Barriers pledge. I was hoping that that would inspire our community to do so. And since then, we've had the most amazing pledges, people writing books and riding horses again and starting uh, nonprofits, starting new businesses. And that's something we talk quite a lot about and no barriers. We talk about this idea of alchemy, of changing the narrative, of taking struggle and translating it into beauty and joy and love and purpose and wisdom, all these things that we strive for. Oh, that's beautiful. And it sounds like this trip was a catalyst for that for you in some ways. And do you feel like this experience helped you be more present and let go of control a bit more in your quote unquote real life? I still struggle with that. Yes, the goal is to be more present, to not be thinking. I mean, I'm always like, you know, I'm all, I finished one adventure and I'm calling my friend about Wednesday, you know, oh, we're going to get out on Wednesday, you know. So I'm constantly struggling with that, you know, so that these experiences don't become transactional. They're like really have depth and meaning and value in your life. So I think I am getting better at it. 
as I get older and hopefully wiser, there's no guarantee that older makes you wiser. There's not always necessarily this thing around the corner that's going to give your life more meaning. But sometimes if you're just in the present, in our daily lives, and I'm really fully committed to this moment, maybe that's meaning enough, you know, that you don't necessarily have to go to the Grand Canyon or to Mount Everest to have one of these transformative experiences. You can have it in your backyard. Yes, agreed. Well, thank you so much for your time, Eric. Awesome. Good to talk to you all. That was Eric Weinmayer. If you want to hear more about his trip and what he learned from it, check out the documentary he and his team made called The Weight of Water, which won the Banff Film Festival in 2018. Learn more about Eric at ericweinmayer.com, on his No Barriers podcast, or watch The Weight of Water. We'll link to it all in our show notes. And of course, you can follow Eric's adventures on Twitter at Eric Weinmayer. Finally, it's time for Tiny Travel Tales. And because this is the final episode of our season, I thought it would be fun to share one of my own Tiny Travel Tales. So here you go. It was our first time traveling alone internationally. My sister Aaliyah and I were fresh off of a two week long trip through Europe with our family. And now she and I were on our own journey, a tour of Italy. Our first stop was the Cinque Terre, those five towns on the Italian Riviera linked by what were once goat paths but are now hiking paths. Now this was back before the Cinque Terre had been fully discovered by Americans. It was before iPhones and Instagram. It was back before Rick Steves became kind of a bigger thing. But we had found the Cinque Terre in a Rick Steves guidebook, and it seemed like exactly what we wanted. It was remote, picturesque, and adventurous. As we stepped off the train in Rio Maggiore, gawking at the sights all around us, we were confronted by a tiny older woman dressed in all black. Camera, she shouted, moving aggressively in front of us. Camera? Unfortunately, we only spoke a bit of Italian, so it took us a moment to figure out that she wanted to know if we needed a room. We did. As I said, this was back before you could book a vacation with the click of a button, but we were baby travelers and unsure how to read her or the situation. She wanted us to follow her, but Ali and I looked at each other and it was clear we were both a little uneasy with the idea. No, grazie, no, we said with apologetic smiles as we lifted our backpacks and moved to walk away. The woman followed us, speaking in rapid Italian, but we just waved, smiled, and continued to walk. We had been so confident we would find a place to stay that night, but as we walked through the brightly colored fishing town, asking hotel after hotel, it became clear the town was totally booked. There was not a single room available. It was late in the evening by the time we had exhausted the last hotel, too late now to hike to the next town or to take a train out. So we started to feel a little desperate. We stopped at a little bar restaurant to brainstorm over a couple of glasses of soothing limoncello. As the bartender cleared our glasses, he asked in broken English how long we were staying. We tried to respond in broken Italian that we wanted to stay for a few days but couldn't find a hotel. He held up a hand and pantomimed making a phone call. Ali and I looked at each other and shrugged. 
five minutes later, he was off the phone and communicating. We thought that he had a place for us to stay. Again, Aliyah and I looked at each other with apprehension. But this time we gave each other little nods because what other choice did we have? And so with butterflies, we followed our bartender into the winding alleys for what seemed like an hour, but was probably only a couple of minutes. Given the language barrier, we still didn't quite know what we had signed up for. Suddenly, he stopped in front of a building and knocked on a door. A voice shouted to come up, and we followed our bartender up the stairs into a small apartment. And who was standing at the top? The tiny old woman from the train station. Ciao, Bella, she shouted, a twinkle of recognition in her eye. We wound up staying with her for three nights in a spacious, sunlit room with a rooftop patio and a fantastic view of the town and the sea. We discovered through her son, who had translated for us, that at the train station, the woman had tried to communicate that the town was entirely booked. We had mistook her insistence on helping us as something else entirely. It was a small event, but it made a ripple in my travel life. It was a reminder to, yes, trust your gut if it says something is wrong. But more importantly, it was a reminder to be open to people, to the world, and the gifts that both can offer. And that, folks, is my tale. My sister and I have traveled plenty since that trip. Our next journey will be a food tour of Mexico in spring 2022. Thanks so much for joining us this season. Ready for more travel stories? Visit us online at afar.com slash travel tales. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Afar Media. Thanks for joining us for these past 15 episodes. We hope you'll come back next season for more great stories. Subscribing makes this easy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And please be sure to rate and review us. It helps other travelers find the show. This has been Travel Tales, a production of Afar Media and Boom Integrated. Our podcast is produced by Aislinn Green, Adrian Glover, and Robin Lai. Post-production was by John Marshall Media staff Jen Grossman and Clint Rhodes. Music composition by Alan Kresha. And a special thanks to Laura Redman, Irene Wang, Angela Johnston, and Nina Gainsler-Debs. I'm Aislinn Green, your semi-impatient travel-ready host. I can't wait to hit the road again and again. As we begin to explore the world once more, remember that travel begins the moment we walk out our front door. Everyone has a travel tale. What's yours? What's yours?